Our scripture today comes from John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. Uh, Jesus is speaking here at first. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will, not ask, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. For those of you I don't know, I'm Matthew, and rather than tell you a lot about myself before I begin preaching, I simply ask you to come up and say hi after the service. I'd love to be able to talk to you. I mentioned this in what I, I just prayed But I'll say it again, friends, the, the word of God repeatedly speaks to what we think in our minds. Mark eight thirty three, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 2 Timothy 2, 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything Matthew twenty two thirty seven. you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. And I think some of us are really comfortable with that, at least in theory. We were thinking types by nature. We, we like to learn what is true so we can know what is true. And the idea of things being true out there that you don't know is just mildly unsettling to some of us. But, but the Christian faith, friends, doesn't just engage our minds. It engages our hearts. It, it makes a, a claim, if you would, on our affections and our emotions. I, I didn't read all of Matthew 22, 37 earlier. What, what does it say in total? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
familiar words to many of us, but, but notice this, that Jesus doesn't give us a choice between loving God with our mind. I love knowing all the things that are true. And loving God with our heart, honoring him in, in what we feel. He wants and deserves and commands us, notice that, to love him with all that we are, our thoughts and our feelings included. And yes, even if you don't think of yourself as a particularly emotional person, you have feelings, <laughs> gentlemen. You have affections because we're made in the image of, the, of God who has emotions and affections. A Christian is not just somebody who thinks what God thinks. A Christian is someone who also feels what God feels. And the distinguishing mark, please hear this, when it it comes to what we're feeling through our emotions, through our affections, you, you walk into that room, the distinguishing mark of a Christian And that category is joy. Deuteronomy 12, 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 1 Chronicles 16, 10. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Philippians 2, 17 through 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. In the emotional realm, the distinguishing mark of a Christian is joy. Because a Christian is someone who believes the gospel. (laughs) The, The good news of of who Jesus is and all he's done to accomplish salvation for mankind. And that gospel, that good news, does something to your emotions. It turns our sorrow into joy. That's that's why it's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Not in the sense, listen, of eliminating our sorrows in this life, but in the sense of making our reasons for joy always greater than our reasons for sorrow, such that joy abounds even when sorrow remains. That's what I'm talking about. And the context of John 16, and we're looking at a big chunk this morning, but the context of the whole chapter really is human sorrow. We're just kind of dropping into a conversation that actually began back in chapter 13, where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm about to leave you guys. And they're troubled. And they're anxious. So so he spends the better part of three chapters comforting them and encouraging them and, and explaining to them, guys, here's why you should not feel that way. Now notice, he's not, in this entire passage, he's not just saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I know you've got all those feeling things going on because you're human beings and you're kind of up and down like that. And sure glad I'm not that. No. No, he, he speaks directly to their emotional experience. And he tells them why you should not be emotionally troubled. You should be emotionally rejoicing. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so when we get to the end of of chapter 16 here, Jesus is just doubling down on the exact same theme, circling back to where he began. Guys, I'm about to leave, but you shouldn't be troubled. You should rejoice because the gospel turns our sorrows into joy. And then he spends the better part of the rest of this chapter, different ways you could organize this, but I think this is a helpful lens, explaining 
reasons why the gospel turns sorrow into joy. Why, why does the gospel turn sorrow into joy? Several reasons. First, because there is joy in sharing in the life of Jesus. Joy in sharing in the life of Jesus. Look at verse 16. Let's dive into the context here a little bit more. When Jesus says in verse 16, chapter 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. The disciples are completely confused. (laughs) I mean, maybe some of us were as we were first reading that, right? Like a little while this, then a little while that. They're confused. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And what's this whole thing about going to the Father? You got to love their honesty, but, but they don't quite have the courage to ask Jesus to explain that, but they didn't actually need to because Jesus knew their thoughts. He knows yours too, friend. He has intimate knowledge of you. All your questions, all your confusion about spiritual things, all all the things you're struggling with when it comes to the Christian faith, or just God's existence in general, but nobody else around you sitting in this room necessarily knows that. God knows that. He cares for you. you. You never should wonder if he understands or gets you because he proves that he does. And he addresses their struggle head on. He, he basically says, is this what you are asking yourselves, guys? What what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again in a little while and you will see me. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What's he talking about? Well, he's speaking of the, the imminent reality of his death and his resurrection. So why, why would the disciples soon see him no longer? Because he's about to die a cruel death on a cross. And when he dies, what's going to happen? Well, his disciples will be grieved because it feels like the end of the line. Hope shattered. Promises abandoned. Game over. So why would the world rejoice? Everybody who wasn't following Jesus, why would they rejoice? Why why were the the Jewish leaders, if you look at other parts in the scripture, and, and the vast majority of the Jewish people, elated that he was gone, glad to see him dead, shouting out, crucify him. Well, it was because they, they didn't they didn't want to believe in Jesus, friends. They didn't want to. Why not? Why, why do we often not want to believe in Jesus? Because they didn't want to submit to his authority. Can we be honest? They, they wanted, we want, to stay in charge of our own life so we can do it our way. That's why they rejoiced. And this isn't necessarily the, the main point of this whole passage, but, but just Note here before we move on that if you're a Christian, okay, there, there are many things that will bring joy to the world, but sorrow to you. And sorrow to the world, but joy to you. Think, think about that. The, the world rejoices in absolute sexual autonomy. We do not. We rejoice in devoting our money, all of it, to God's kingdom and God's purposes. Storing up treasures in heaven. The world does not. Be careful to not take your emotional cues in life from the world around you. Okay? Because... Because we are elect exiles. Kingsway. We're, we're a peculiar people who don't just think differently, we feel differently. And listen, okay, that the fact that someone else is rejoicing or weeping doesn't automatically mean you should. Or <laughs> that if you're failing, 
to do that, you're not loving them. We, we love the people around us. We love the world best when we're doing what with our emotions? We're rejoicing in what God rejoices and we're grieving what God grieves. Don't, don't take your emotional cues from whoever's around you. Follow the Lord. Jesus' disciples were right to grieve his death. They were right to do that because the crucifixion of the Son of God was the greatest atrocity ever committed in the history of the world. And can you imagine, in contrast to that, the joy those guys felt when three days later, Jesus rose from the grave? Can you imagine that? I mean, he, he walked out of a tomb alive. <laughs> Why? Because the infinite worth of his life exceeded the infinite debt of our sin. And the justice of God demanded he not remain in that tomb. Verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus saw it coming and he was right. They, they rejoiced. Why? Why would they soon rejoice in his resurrection? Because his resurrection proved Jesus is who he says he is. The son of God come into the world to vanquish the curse of sin and death by bearing our sins and dying our death. He, he defeated death by dying. And he rose to give, to give resurrection life to all who cling to him by faith. In the kingdom of God, life comes through death. That the sorrow of the cross inevitably leads to the joy of the resurrection. It, it's like a woman giving birth to a child, Jesus says. And I'm going to be real, real careful here, lest I get corrected later. <laughs> but having watched a few of these, giving birth is an exercise in pain and anguish. It's perhaps an understatement. But, but when that child is finally born... What's Jesus saying? The, the, the joy of welcoming a new life into the world. It doesn't take away all that anguish. Like, what anguish? No. No, but what? It causes that joy to surpass the anguish. It doesn't deny it, but it surpasses it. That's his point. It's not joy absent suffering. It's joy that transcends and surpasses suffering. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Right. <laughs> All right, Captain Obvious. So why <laughs> does it feel like just about any kind of suffering. Or I'll just confess this, I, even a relatively minor inconvenience in my day can just take whatever joy I felt. You know what I'm talking about? And it just flies the coop. Just gone. Bye. <laughs> if you're saying, Jesus, no one will take your joy from you as the people of God, why is that so often my life experience? Why, why does it feel like the joy I have in Jesus is constantly flying the coop? Well, friends, it's not because Jesus has given the, the reins of your joy to your life circumstances or the people around you. You know why it flies the coop? It's because we hand the reins over. How do we do that? Well, all kinds of ways. By allowing that unexpected bill or that cutting remark, or the weakness in our spouse, or the, the rebellion in the hearts of our kids to do what? To take our eyes off Jesus. And the life-giving, joy-sustaining, hope-abounding riches that are ours in him. The, the resurrection of Christ, the fact that right now Jesus is alive, should shape our emotions as the people of God. And do that in two ways. First, the resurrection gives us enduring joy in the present. If you're a Christian, 
right now in this moment and every moment of your life, your Savior, Jesus Christ, is not dead. He's very much alive. <laughs> he couldn't be more alive. And, and here's what that means, just to give you a quick tour, okay? Because Jesus is alive, God is always with you, for you, and will not stop doing good to you. Hebrews 7.25 gives you a reason to rejoice. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus is alive, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 9 gives a reason to rejoice. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's keep going. Because Jesus is alive, he will not fail to vindicate every single act of evil ever committed against you. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is a reason to rejoice. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And because Jesus is alive, not a single sacrifice you ever make for the sake of his body or his church or his mission will ever be made in vain, friend. Matthew 16 verse 18 gives you a reason to rejoice. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We could keep going. <laughs> what, what's the point of all these passages? This isn't a one-off in the Bible. But the point is that the resurrection of Christ is not an isolated historical event that Christians just kind of look back on like a birthday with fondness. Wasn't that sweet? Let's, let's watch the DVD again. No, not at all, friend. Not at all. The resurrection of Christ, listen, is the assurance of our salvation, the dawn of the new creation, and the unshakable ground of our joy in the present. Remember that. But there's a second way it shapes our emotional experience. It doesn't just give us joy in the present. It also gives us joy in the future. Because Jesus' words in verse 22, look back there. I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. That primarily refers to his resurrection. But it also captures the joy of his return. Listen to J.C. Ryle. There is something even in the hearts of the most eminent saints that will never be fully satisfied as long as they are on earth and Christ is in heaven. Do you feel that, friend? Do you feel that? Never fully satisfied. So long as they dwell in a body of corruption and see through a glass darkly, so long as they behold creation groaning under the power of sin and all things not put under Christ, so long their happiness and peace must needs be incomplete. He's right. Thus so much of our sorrow, right? But what a day that's going to be. <laughs> when he returns, and you see him face to face, what a day that's going to be. Philippians 3.20 is a reason to rejoice. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. To be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him. Even to subject all things to himself. And so is Revelation 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. That the resurrection of Christ guarantees, Christian, that the banner over your future screams joy. So don't give, please hear this, let's not give other people or things the power to steal our joy. Stop handing over the reins of your joy to something to which King Jesus has not given the reins of your joy. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let the gospel shape your emotions. I I love how Edward Klink says this so well. The definitive and permanent nature of the disciples' joy is not based upon the absence of any future grief and affliction, but by the placement of all grief and affliction into the larger context of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what's going on here. There's there's joy in sharing in the life of Jesus, both in the present and in the future. That's the first reason the gospel gives us joy. Here's the second one. There is joy in praying in the name of Jesus. We don't just share in his life. Christian, we, we pray in his name. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, on one level, when Jesus says, in that day, after his resurrection, you will ask nothing of me, he's, he's clearly saying, a lot of your questions are going to be resolved. <laughs> When you finally see me risen from the grave and the the connections start happening and the lights start going on, oh, wow, I get it. I get it. But, But on another level, Jesus is teaching us something really important here about the privilege of prayer. So so think carefully with me about this, okay? Prior to his resurrection, before that happened, I think it was easy to to think of bringing request to him as something distinct from bringing request to God. Why do I say that? Well, because it was, for many, still easy to think, well, you're just a man. I mean, I've done some great things, but I'm sure we can kind of explain that away. So if I bring requests to you, it's, I mean, that's good, but It's not like bringing a request to God the Father. Well, his resurrection shattered that illusion. For those who had eyes to see, right? No human being in the history of the world had ever resurrected themselves from the grave after being dead for three days. And so what's the resurrection of Christ prove more than anything else, among other things, that Jesus isn't just a man, he's God. He's not a man like you, alone. He's the son of God. God incarnate validates his divine identity. And so after that happens, Jesus says, and you're confronted by that decisive proof, you won't bring requests to me thinking in your mind that you're doing something other than or distinct from bringing your request to God. Rather, you'll realize that I have made a way for you to bring your request directly to God the Father. That because I'm the son of God and the son of man, I'm the, I'm the only mediator between God and man. And I am infinitely pleasing to God the Father. And after my resurrection, you're going to have the stunning privilege of praying in my name. Confidence in prayer. This side of the resurrection. This side of Jesus' life. Confidence in prayer doesn't come from being a good person or swearing that if God comes through for you, you'll do all sorts of things for him. You know, the the bargaining approach. No, not at all. The, The only kind of prayer God hears and the only kind of prayer God delights to answer is prayer in Jesus' name or or prayer that's made on the the basis of, on the ground, on the foundation of the divine welcome and favor and access 
that Jesus has won for us. Don't, don't, if, if you often end prayers in Jesus' name, know two things about that, okay? Just to get real practical. One, there's no place in the Bible that says you have to do that as your sign-off. Okay? Oh, I forgot to say that. That must have bounced on the glass ceiling and come back down to earth awkwardly. Like, no! But no, when you pr- pray and you pray, Lord, I bring these requests to you, my Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Know that in that moment, you were exercising, Christian, one of the choicest privileges of the gospel, which is access directly to God the Father through the mediation of God the Son, that the fatherly favor Jesus has won for us, confirmed by the resurrection, is chiefly experienced in all its its life-giving, joy-imparting fullness through the activity of prayer calling on the Father in the name of the Son. Look at verse 24. Ask and you will receive, Jesus says, that your joy may be full. What's he saying? That there's a surpassing peace and joy you will only experience to the degree you're faithful to cast your cares on the Father through prayer. And and we shouldn't be surprised if we neglect that privilege, exercising that gift, directly calling on the Father through prayer, If we neglect that, yeah, I just don't really pray much. We shouldn't be surprised if our joy as Christians just begins to tank. Why? Because it's the exercise of that privilege that strengthens our joy in the privilege. But look at verse 26 real quickly because I think Jesus debunks a myth here that can really trip us up. And that day after his resurrection, when it comes to prayer, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. What's going on with that? Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation where maybe you have two friends or two family members? Let's go family members, especially distant relative kind of thing. And Neither one of them like each other at all, but they both like you. You ever been in that sort of middle ground, you know, especially in a family situation or a friend situation, you know what that feels like. You're, you're what I call the relational go-between. Like if you left the party, everybody else would go because they're only all here because of their individual connections to you. Okay, you're tracking. Well, I think we can think of prayer like that. If we're not careful, we, we, we can think that God the Father doesn't really like us because we still sin. I mean, I guess because Jesus died for me, he has to put up with me, (laughs) tolerate me, but but he doesn't really love me, like for reals, the way he loves Jesus. So if we want to get our prayers answered, we have to bring our request to Jesus and then Jesus takes them, brings them to the Father. Father gives the answer back to Jesus. Jesus takes the answer back to us. Because you know, these two aren't quite tight. What's the problem with that? Well, friend, if if you, by a supernatural work of grace in your heart, if you love Jesus, okay, if you you treasure him as your savior, the son of God sent from God to make you right with God, then know this, the father certainly loves the son. He always has, he always will, but the father loves you too. He really, really does. And and his his love for you isn't a byproduct or, or kind of the, unexpected, quasi-anonymous overflow of, you know, the real love for Jesus. And you're just kind of like, ah, splashing in the side waves. No, his love for you is deeply, deeply personal, Christian. Deeply personal. He, he knows you by name. 
It's not hypothetical or just accidental overflow. He loves you. The Father loves you because Jesus earned that love for you. You think he's going to deny his son the reward of his suffering? He, he can no longer, no more stop loving you, Christian, than he could stop loving the son of his love. Because what's a Christian? Somebody that's been united to Christ by faith. If you find yourself thinking, well, I know God, the Father, has to love the Son. I mean, he's like the deal. I'm not sure he loves me. You are sorely mistaken. Because the same confidence you have in the Father's love for the Son should be the same confidence you have in the Father's love for you. Because you're in the Son. There's a sense in which the Father loves the whole world. Okay, John 3.16, God so loved the world, but his covenant love, or as one of my kids' favorite books says, his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, justifying, adopting, sanctifying, preserving love, that, that is reserved exclusively for his chosen people, for those who are in the son of his love. So when you pray, Christian, please, please know, because of the gospel, you're not... You're not participating in some sort of game of spiritual telephone. The thing I acted out earlier, okay? The Father himself delights to hear from you. He wants to hear from you because he loves you with all his heart. You're not tolerated. You're family. And so when trouble threatens to overwhelm your soul or or steal your joy, resolve to pray. Resolve to pray because without fail, some of you have probably seen this, The Christians that are the most joyful in this life are the Christians that are most faithful to pray. Not because it's magic, but because when we are exercising that privilege of access, our joy in Jesus grows. You want to experience the joy, you have to exercise the privilege. There's joy in praying in the name of Jesus. Here's here's the last way the gospel shapes our emotions and gives us joy. There is joy in trusting in the power of Jesus and sharing in the life of Jesus and praying in the name of Jesus and finally in trusting in the power of Jesus. In verse 28, he summarizes kind of there and back again, the whole story of the gospel and, and the disciples get really excited thinking, okay, Jesus, we, we get it. You came from the father coming down to earth to, do some amazing things, and now you're going back to the Father. We get it. We believe you. And everything they say about the Lord here is true and right. Look at verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. Does Jesus know all things? Yes. And do not need anyone to question you. Does he need any outside organization to validate his authority? No. This is why we believe that you came from God. Did he come from God? Absolutely. Sent from the Father. It's all true and right, but but their self-confidence in their own faith is not. That's the problem. Jesus knows something they didn't see, that their faith isn't nearly as strong as they think or say it is. And in fact, their spiritual self-assessment is, well, Woefully inadequate. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And the disciples actually do the very thing Jesus warned they would do later the very same night. They didn't have to wait long. When the Jewish leaders arrest their Lord, and they all flee. To to put it in Jesus' language, they they exchange his dwelling place for their own. They all go to their own homes. What I love, what's so beautiful here is that even before it happened, knowing it would happen, Jesus doesn't berate or shame them because of their weakness. Yeah, you yeah. You believe me? Well, guess what's about to happen, which is pretty much, well, I'm kind of done with you. 
No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't shame them at all. What's he do? He immediately urges them. Notice this. To follow his example in finding peace, not in the strength of their faith, but in who God is. Look, you will leave me alone. That's true. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. What, what Jesus is teaching them through, through his own example, he's saying, guys, don't be enamored by your own faithfulness or your own faith, okay? Join me in taking refuge in the Father. In what? In placing your confidence in the nearness and faithfulness of God. Why? Because human faithfulness will always fall short. Jesus knows that. They don't quite get that, but he knows that. But that doesn't destroy the ground of Jesus' joy. And nor should it destroy yours, friend. Whether you're, you're staring into the mirror of your own unfaithfulness, or, or somebody close to you who's disappointed you or betrayed you, why not? Because where people fail you again and again and forsake you over and over, the Heavenly Father who loves you will never do those things. Never. Not once. Verse 33, look there. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Not, not in yourselves, not in, not in even your own profession of faith. Peace is found in Jesus. Now, was their profession of faith genuine, you ask? Well, Jesus isn't lying when he says in verse 27, you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. There was genuine faith in their heart there. So what was the problem that at the end of this conversation? The, the problem is this, that there is a world of difference between leaning on your self-assessment of your own faith and leaning on the faithfulness of God. Those are very different things. Your faith Critical as that is, cannot save you, friend. Hear that. If that shocks you, good. <laughs> Your faith cannot save you. Jesus saves you. Remember that when your faith feels weak and you're tempted to despair. And then, and then Jesus concludes his final words to them in these three chapters with, with a rousing summary of everything he said in chapters 13 through 16. Here's the bottom line, guys. Okay, very last verse, 33. I know you're troubled. I know you're going to keep experiencing trouble. You're going to have trouble without. You're going to have trouble within. You're going to confront faithlessness without, faithlessness within you. But, but don't be surprised by that, guys. Don't be surprised when it happens. When it happens, and even before it happens, do this. Take heart. Be joyful. Why? Look at verse 33. For the simple, life-transforming fact that I have overcome the world. Three chapters. Jesus' last words before he dies to his closest followers. What's the final thing he says? In this world, you will have tribulation, guys. But take heart, rejoice, because I've overcome the world. That unbelief in your heart, my power is greater. The opposition you experience from your friends for my namesake, my power is greater. Everything that is that is not the way it should be from the, the greatest evil to the smallest inconvenience. I'm using all of that for my glory and your good, guys. The, the, the world and all, and all the people and circumstances in it, including your own doubts and, and self-confidence, all of that is not supreme, guys. I am supreme. The, the world isn't 
calling the shots in your life. I'm doing that. And though I have yet to die and yet to rise, my triumph over every other power is so certain, so guaranteed that it's not a future possibility. It's a present reality. Notice verse 33, take heart. I, what? Have overcome the world. As J.C. Ryle says, he bids us rest in the thought that he has fought our battle and won a victory for us. So he has, friend. (laughs) So he has. If, If you are in Christ, if you're holding fast, if you're clinging to him by faith, even a mustard seed of faith, you share in the victory of Jesus over the world. And though we're waiting for the day for what? When all of his enemies are are made a footstool for his feet, the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father assures us of something right now. What's that? That every rival power in the universe right now is presently subject to King Jesus. That's what his resurrection shouts and declares. So that person who maligned you this week, Jesus has already overcome them. The temptations to sin that you'll experience on your phone later tonight, Jesus has already overcome them. The political leader who leads people away from righteousness, Jesus has overcome them. The prince of darkness who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, Jesus has overcome him. He's not favored to win or likely to win. He's won. (laughs) You can't play sports book betting with King Jesus because the game is over. (laughs) Remember that. When was it over, Pastor? Well, it was over when on the cross he cried out, it's finished. And then it was really over when he walked out of the tomb alive. Daniel 7, verse 14. And to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when your hardship comes this week, and and you feel like your joy is just doing the flying the coop thing, okay? Don't lose heart. Remember, Jesus has already won the battle, and because he's overcome, you will too. What, what? What's the whole good news of the gospel? That Jesus' story is our story, right? And that because we know his story, we can know our story too. And that's why there's abundant joy in trusting in the power of Jesus. If you take away nothing else from this passage, remember this. The gospel shapes our emotions. Jesus cares about a lot more than just what you think about him in your mind. He wants to know what's in your heart. Where are your affections? Let's, let's, can we pull up a chair and, and talk about your joy? He cares deeply about that, friend, because it's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Because if you believe the gospel, the gospel does what? It turns our sorrows into joy. Not because, quick review, that our sorrows go away, at least right now, completely, but because the reasons for joy far surpass our reasons for sorrow and sustain our joy even in the midst of sorrow, which means a joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. So let's not be a church that even when we're suffering, even when things are hard, even when you feel exhausted or, or life's really busy or difficult or whatever mm, adjectives you want to put into that. How are you doing? Oh, Let's be honest, but let's not undermine the integrity of our witness through a lack of joy in our life. 
I'm not talking about putting on a happy face or, oh gosh, now if Matthew comes up to me today and says, how are you? I'm fine. (laughs) Don't ask more. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I'm talking about believing the gospel. Okay? Believe the gospel. Oh yeah, because it does some magic, ha, think to my joy. No, no, because it gives you sturdy reasons for joy that you can understand and cling to and remember and fight to remember and keep trusting and not stop trusting. What's that? That, that we share in the life of Jesus. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And we trust the power of Jesus. Take your despondent soul in hand and say with the psalmist, why are you cast down? Oh, my soul. Why are you in turmoil within me? Soul? Hope in God. Come on. (laughs) Hope in God. Yes, we're crying. Yes, we're weeping. Yes, I'm exhausted. But hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Lord Jesus, We need you to do that work in our hearts. We want to be a people that through our emotions, and in particular, our joy, tell the world that you're for real. Thank you for loving us enough to not just kind of come sailing in and, and give us a new thought module. But, but for slowing down, for being a good shepherd, for putting your finger on our heart, on what we're feeling, on our emotions, on our affections. And Jesus, thank you for not doing that to just find one more thing to condemn us with or to shame us over, but because you love us, God. You love us, Father. And you sent your Son that your joy could be in us and our joy could be full. So we we pray right now as your people that you would make us a distinctively joyful people and that one of the characteristic qualities of of this church for generations to come would be that. That's a really happy place. (laughs) That's a joyful people. That's a people that weep over what God grieves and at the same time never stop rejoicing in what Jesus delights. Lord God, help us to love you with all of our emotions. In your name we pray, amen.